Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. My name, whether you're live at Moss Campus or whether you are live streaming, I'm Talbot Davis. I'm the pastor here. As always, really, really glad to be able to connect with you, however you are connecting with this congregation. And as the video said, we're in this series, and it comes from the book of Daniel, and it is a series kind of talking about how it is that you can sometimes feel like the whole world is moving one way and you're moving another way. The, the world is stepping in a certain direction and you are out of step. And uh, if you have your Bible with you, I'll invite you to locate the book of Daniel, chapter five in the Bible. And some of you brought a Bible that looks like this. And a lot of you have the Bible loaded on your phone. Either way is okay. And if you're like, oh no, it's not on my phone or I don't bring my phone into church or it's not, I don't have a Bible with me. How am I gonna be able to see it? The good news is that the words will be up on the screen at just the right time, like they are whenever we gather. And, and we do that because we believe a couple of things about the Bible at Good Shepherd. And we just remind ourselves of these things whenever we gather. And some of you have heard this stuff a lot and others of you, you haven't heard it before. Either way is okay. But one of the things that we believe about the Bible at Good Shepherd Church is that although this looks like a book, this is not a book. It's a library. It's a collection of a lot of books written by a lot of authors over a long span of time. And get this, in multiple writing styles. And so when we're in the book of Daniel, we're in the section of the biblical library that's all about history. This is ancient history. This describes events that happened about 2,600 years ago, 2,500, 2,600 years ago. So way before five or 600 years before Jesus was even born. And, and uh, so that's just a fact that a lot of people don't know, but it's nevertheless true. The other thing that we believe about the Bible and remind ourselves about, and, and when I tell you this thing, you, you may be like, yes, thank you for believing that, or I'm not really sure I'm with you yet. And either way is fine. We just want you to know where we stand. And at this church, we believe that there's no other library like this one, that God breathed his life and his words. He put his truth onto its pages. We believe the Bible really is inspired and eternal and true. And because we believe that about the Bible, when we gather together, we do something. And some of you are already beating me to the punch like you do every Sunday. We lift it up. And if, if you've never been here before and you're looking around and there's phones and books and stuff in the air and you're like, that's, that's kind of strange. You know, we, we, yeah, we admit it. It is different. But we've discovered that this is a moment of oddity that shapes our identity as a community. We are a collection of people joyfully surrendered to the authority of the word and ready for its power to be let loose in our lives. Amen? And before, hey, thank you. Yes. And, and before, uh, before I say another word, we're going to pray. And before I pray, just look real quick to your left and then look real quick to your right. And if you're live streaming, if somebody else is in the room, just look at that person. And if you're live streaming alone, think of someone in your mind. And what I want you to do is just that person you saw on your left and your right. We're going to pray together. And I just want you to pray for that person you saw on either side of you. Pray that they'll really be touched by this message. Let's pray. So God, thank you for the people you've surrounded us with. And I pray that those who are surrounding us would really be touched by this message, that they would be your words and not mine. Thank you for your goodness and your joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
so there are uh, two phrases, two sayings, really. And if you grew up in North America, which is not everybody here, but it is a lot of you here. If you, if you grew up in North America and you heard either one of these two sayings and you heard them applied maybe to a political candidate or maybe to the place where you work or maybe to a celebrity athlete or maybe even to yourself and, and you heard one of these two phrases, you, you knew that nothing good was fixing to happen. And, and these two phrases are, the writing's on the wall, and your days are numbered. I mean, think about it. You, you've said those things, you have heard those things. And when they got said at work, like, like no one, when you hear at work, oh, the writing's on the wall, that doesn't mean, and we're gonna have record sales next quarter. It means we're all getting laid off tomorrow. Or when you're talking about a football coach and he's in the middle of a losing season and the commentators talk about his days are numbered, that doesn't mean they're numbered to infinity and beyond. It means that the day after the last game of the year, he's without a job. Both of these sayings, the writing's on the wall and your days are numbered. They are filled with doom and they are filled with gloom. They are all about your time is gonna come. But what you may not know about these two sayings that frankly, let's admit it, you hadn't really lifted you up uh, to the heights of ecstasy at this moment, but what you may not know about these two sayings, the writings on the wall and your days are numbered, is that both of them have their origin story in the Bible. They both come from Daniel chapter five, the story that we're fixing to look at today. Isn't that awesome? Thank you for agreeing. And more than that, not only is that awesome, but when, but when we look at where these sayings come from and why they emerge, and when I tell you the thing that I'm going to tell you a little bit later, because I'm going to tell you something, it has the ability and the potential dramatically to alter the trajectory of your life, to the trajectory of your marriage, the place where you work, your own living relationship with Jesus Christ. If you get this thing, that I'm gonna tell you it really has the power to be life, all, no pressure there that I'm putting on myself is there, but this really has the power to make an enormous impact on you. Because where these two sayings come from, the writing's on the wall and your, your days are numbered, come from Daniel chapter five, like I mentioned. And when we look at the book of Daniel, Daniel himself, the man, he represents a people, Israel, and a God, the Lord, by the way, in, in your English Bible, anytime you read in the Old Testament and it says the Lord, that really is a, a translation of this word Yahweh, which was the way Israel talked about their God, whom they believed to be the only God there was. So, but when we get to Daniel, the book of Daniel, Daniel represents a people, Israel, and a God, the Lord, who in the world's eyes are out of business. I mean, can you imagine a whole country and a whole religion just out of business? Because what has happened is that the Israel, the people, they have been defeated in a war and overrun by their enemies, the Babylonians, which is modern day Iraq. And all this happened in about 587 BC. So about 2,600 years ago.
when, when they were defeated by the Babylonians, their city was ransacked, their temple, with this glorious Jer Jerusalem temple where they worshiped God, it was looted, it was ruined, it was hollowed out, and the best and the brightest of the people who lived there in Jerusalem, they were put into chains and they were marched across the desert to Babylon, so from Israel to Iraq, to serve as slaves. That's how Daniel finds himself as an exile in Babylon. He's not there because he took a vacation one summer. Whoa, here I am in Babylon. <laughs> he, he's there because he's been put in chains and marched against his will across the desert where he will serve as a slave. And get this, in, in the way the ancient mind worked, our minds don't work this way, but in the way the ancient mind worked, if your army lost a battle, that meant your God lost as well. So from the Babylonian perspective, because they had won, because they had triumphed over Israel, that meant their God of war, Marduk, and Marduk was one of a lot of gods that the Babylonians had, but that meant that their God of war had triumphed over Israel's God, the Lord, and so the Lord was out of business. And, and the proof that he was out of business is that nothing was going on in the Jerusalem temple. They weren't worshiping God there at all. And, and so Daniel, been marched across the desert against his will, he's a, he's a one God worshiper because that's what it means to be Jewish. And yet he's in the middle of all these multi-God praisers because that's who the Babylonians were. Really, Daniel is like Chick-fil-A. Like you ever, you ever go to Chick-fil-A and you say, can I have a hamburger, please? That doesn't work. It's like, like that's as pointless as going there on a Sunday. Can I hear an amen for, for... Chick-fil-A does one thing, chicken. They do it brilliantly. And Daniel has one God, the Lord. He's not worshiping, worshiping anybody else. The Babylonians, meanwhile, they're, they're like, their religion is like a cafeteria. I'll take a little bit of this God and a little bit of that God. And when convenient, a little bit of that God and a little bit of that God. And so in this context, in this setting, Daniel, as the one God worshiper in a, in a multi-God universe, he's so out of step, he's so out of place. And yet the amazing thing is, is that through his life, and we've seen in the first four chapters of Daniel, he has this incredible level of success and influence. And at the end of, the, of chapter four of Daniel, Daniel himself, Daniel the man, actually leads Nebuchadnezzar, say that name, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king who conquered Israel. He leads Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge Israel's God. He, he's acknowledged, it says, the Lord, he really is God, which is amazing because Nebuchadnezzar should have thought, oh, I conquered Israel, their, their God is out of business. And Daniel's been able to say, no, 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 no. He's the real God. And Nebuchadnezzar says, yes. And that's how Daniel chapter four ends. It's really kind of remarkable. But with that great ending of chapter four, chapter five begins really abruptly. Look at Daniel chapter five, verse one. Look, look what happens. King Belshazzar, so that ain't Nebuchadnezzar anymore. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Now, wait just a minute, mister. When it says, says King Belshazzar, you need to know that this fellow Belshazzar, he's not even the real king. 
His dad is the real king. And this is a couple of generations after Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, and so we know that Daniel's an old man by now, but this is a couple of generations afterwards. And the real king is away on business. And Belshazzar, his son, he's like the interim king. But he decides that even though he's interim king, he's going to live it up and he's going to throw himself a party that no one will ever forget. And when it says there, he drank wine with them. This is not like they went to a little wine tasting in Napa. Okay, this was some serious volume of wine. Just how serious? Look at verses two through four. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father. And when it says he's his father there, it really means his ancestral father. Like George Washington is the father of this country. And that's, that's how Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar's father. That, Belshazzar, that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. See, I told you I wasn't lying. Remember how I said they had looted the temple of everything that was valuable? So they have taken cups and saucers that the Jews worshiped, used to worship God, and they've stolen it all and taken it all to Babylon, to Iraq, to use as they see fit. So here's what happens. So that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets, the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, get this, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods, little G, of gold and silver, of bronze and iron and wood and stone. Oh my gosh. Do you see what they've done? Not only have they taken the, the holy utensils, I guess you could call them, from the Jerusalem temple and used them for very unholy purposes. Because when the king's there drinking wine with his wives and his concubines and everybody else that he can think of, you, you can be rest assured that this was a drunken party. That was the purpose of the party. And then they take it one step further and they decide to start worshiping the actual utensils. They worship the cups and the saucers, they take those items that had been used to help people worship God and they worship them as gods. It, it really is like, like, it's like blasphemy hooked up with idolatry and they had a love child and this is what you get is this drunken party in Babylon. It's just awful stuff. It's, it's kind of like in, in a modern setting, you know, what, what, what would this be like? It might be like taking a communion set from a church cups and saucers and, and using them for an, an occult kind of ritual or, or worse, way worse. Be like taking the instruments from our beloved praise band and putting them to use in a Phil Collins concert. And it would just be dark and desperate stuff that I can feel coming in the air tonight, people. So that's what was going on when, when they, they had this party that night. And so with all of that blasphemy, idolatry, Phil Collinsy stuff, you gotta look what happens in verse five. Suddenly, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace, the king 
watched the hand as it wrote, gulp, like a disembodied hand, a human tarantula starts marching across the wall and writing. And look at what the king's reaction. The, the king watched the hand as he wrote and his face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking, you think? This is the first sensible thing that this king has done all day. Because he's not even the real king. He's just interim king throwing a party while daddy's gone away on business. All of you who did that one year were in high school, go ahead and raise your hand. And maybe it didn't get quite that debauched that this one did. He's not even the real king. He's been so entitled. He's taking all of his positions and all of his blessings. He takes it all for granted. And so what God has got to do is he's got to stop him in his tracks. And if he has to shock this man to, to, to get him to cease taking everything for granted, to move him away from being so entitled, he will. And, and it's why I tell you all, all the time, good shepherd, that, that prosperity is more dangerous than adversity. Because in prosperity, you are tempted to think that you've done it. And in adversity, you know that he has to. And sometimes when you are in that precarious position of prosperity and you're beginning to feel entitled, God might just need to do something dramatic to catch your attention and to remind you who is really in charge and who really is the source of everything that's good in your life. Well, this disembodied hand, this human tarantula writes on the wall. There's, there's writing on the wall. And, and the, the funny thing is, because what follows is this comedy of errors because nobody can read the writing that's on the wall. And, and is it because it was just this indecipherable scrawl like, like a doctor on a prescription pad? And, or, or is it a whole language, all, different language altogether? We don't know because it doesn't say. All we know is that Belshazzar, he, he tries to get his astrologers, his palm readers, his mind readers, every expert he can think of to come and read the writing on the wall and none of them can do it. And finally, someone comes up with the idea, hey, let's get Daniel. I remember Daniel from when he was a younger man and he had an uncanny ability to interpret dreams. Maybe Daniel can read the writing on the wall. So let's go find that Jewish man, that out of step, one God worshiper Daniel and see if he can read the writing on the wall. And, and that sounds like a good idea to Belshazzar who promises Daniel some royal swag if he'll come do this. Look at verse 16, same chapter. This is, this is Belshazzar talking. Now I have heard, Daniel, that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple. And some of you are like, what? what's the big deal about purple? I don't even look good in purple. What's the big deal? And purple's the color of royalty. You'll become a royal person in Babylon. And you'll have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest in the kingdom. So all kinds of royal swag will be yours, Daniel, if you can read the writing on the wall. And it turns out Daniel's not interested in that sort of bribery. Look what he says in verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, ah, 
I added that part. You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and I'll tell him what it means. So Daniel is not interested in the swag, but he is interested in giving interim king Belshazzar a speech. And that's what he does in the next few verses. And the speech that he gives is absolutely, it's a little history lesson, but it's absolutely on fire. Look what he says in verse 18 through 21. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar. Now you know, okay, that's not literally father, that's ancestral father, a couple generations earlier. Sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart, Belshazzar, interim king, when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Get this until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. So Nebuchadnezzar's life had fallen apart until he realized he may be the king of Babylon, but there's a higher king he reports to. And so when Belshazzar, interim King Belshazzar hears that speech, he, he must've been like, well, Daniel, I'm very grateful for that history lesson. Thank you very much for that little review of my family tree. But what, that, what does that have to do with me and this disembodied hand writing on the wall? And that's when Daniel continues his speech, verse 22. But you, and verse 22 is the gut punch. But you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself though you knew all this, but you, you knew and didn't do, but you, Belshazzar, you knew who was really in charge. You knew that all of your blessings really came from Israel's God, the only God there is, and yet you acted like you were God. But you, Belshazzar, you knew and didn't do. And that's why God had to send a human tarantula across the wall to try to get through to you. And I don't know. When people take things for granted, when, when they live with this spirit of entitlement, God has to act dramatically if he needs to. Someone here, someone here has taken your marriage for granted. You, you, you treat it like a prize you won rather than a gift God gave. And someone else has taken your leadership position at work for granted. And someone else is, is taking your financial stability, your money for granted. Like it's a prize you won. It's something you've deserved rather than what God has given. Some of you even have your closest friends in the world, your circle of influence, and you take them for granted. Like you can treat them any way you wish and they'll always be there. 
See, this may be an old story. This may be a 2,600-year-old story, but the spirit of Belshazzar, that spirit of entitlement, that spirit of taking blessings for granted is very much alive today. And so Daniel's got to keep going on because he's gotten Belshazzar's attention. But you, you knew and didn't do. And Belshazzar's, okay, okay, well, all I want, I didn't want the history lesson. I didn't even want you to confront me. All I want to do is to know what is the writing on the wall. And that's where Daniel picks it up at verse 25 of the same chapter where, where he says this, this is the inscription that was written, many, many, Tekel, Parson. You're like, that's not very interesting. But then Daniel goes on and tells us what that means. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Your days are numbered, pretend King Belshazzar. Verse 27, Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And then verse 28, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians and the Persian, Persia, ancient Persian, modern day Iran. Isn't it interesting? History, not even very long ago, history just keeps repeating itself. Iran, Iraq, they don't like each other now. They didn't like each other then. And so what Daniel's saying, Iran, Mr. Iraqi guy, Iran is getting ready to come in and overtake you. So really what Daniel is, is telling pretend King Belshazzar, Persia is gonna do to you in Babylon what Babylon just did to Israel. You overtook, you ransacked, you looted, you put people in exile. All of that stuff that you done did to us is getting ready to be done done to you, he says. And the writing on the wall is for the purpose of telling this king that his days are numbered. And now you know the origin story of both of those phrases. And then the story ends sort of with a thud in verse 30 and 31. Look at what it says. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Game, set, match. Babylon out, Persia in. Belshazzar dead, Darius in his place. Meet the new boss a whole lot better than the old boss. And so what do we take? What do we take from this masterfully told story that gives us the origin story of the writings on the wall and your days are numbered and involves a disembodied hand and a human tarantula and Daniel, the hero yet again. What do we take? Why, why did God choose to breathe his life and his truth into these words and put them on the pages of scripture? Why? Here, so you and so that I would know this. What you take for granted might just get taken away. Yeah, when you have that spirit of entitlement, I deserve this, this is all about me. Who else deserves this blessing more than I do? What you take for granted when you fail to give God the acknowledgement, when you have that spirit of entitlement, God might just give you a life of abandonment. What you take for granted might just get taken away in ways large and small. 
in ways intimate and epic, in, in ways comic and tragic. It's true. I, I don't know if God always directly ensures that it happens or maybe God has just designed the world so that this is how life flows. All I know, all I know is that I've seen it a bunch that what you take for granted might just get taken away. It's a preacher who was a, had a role as pastor at a college campus, it's a real one, and is one of those college campuses with a big Gothic cathedral in the middle of campus. And they had Sunday services and that people actually went to. I know that's kind of hard to imagine, but kind of a full cathedral on Sunday mornings at this college campus. And, and the pastor noticed that this young man kept coming to the services. And so he finally, he, he asked him, well, I'm so glad you're coming. What, what keeps you coming back? Is it the music? Eh, kinda. Is it the stained glass? No, I'm a, I'm a college student. It's not the stained glass. And then, and then the preacher says, is it the messages? And just so you know, this is what every preacher wants to hear the answer is yes to every single. I mean, if, if it was me, I'd be like, hey, what's the best series you've ever heard at Good Shepherd and why was it walking on eggshells? That's what I would have done. <laughs> so the, the, this guy just, is it the, is it the messages? And, and, and finally, the, the young man says, you know, you know, pastor, really, I just come here to meet girls. <sighs> Every sense of accomplishment and entitlement just gone. What you take for granted might just get taken away. Well, I remember when I was just a little boy that every year for my birthday, I would get a birthday gift in the mail from my godparents, godmother and godfather. It was, they were friends of my parents. It was nice and it was predictable and it was annual. And then I noticed that when I became an adolescent, you know, a young teenager, those gifts start coming and it stopped coming. And so I asked my, well, why, why don't I get birthday presents anymore? Is it, is it because I've gotten too old? I asked my mom and she said, no, it's not because you got too old. It's because you Stop sending thank you notes, you spoiled brat. What you, what you, what you, can I hear an amen for that? What, not with that enthusiasm. What you take for granted might just get taken away. Or that line that I, that I read and I just loved it. And so I wanted to throw it up on the screen for you all. And it goes like this. What will finally destroy us is not communism, and it's not fascism, but man acting like God. That our sense of entitlement often leads to God's abandonment. Yeah. Hey, guys, men in the room, if, you, if, you're, not a, if you're female, you can listen in, but this is a special word for guys, especially those guys in the room who are married. I know that's not all of you, but it is a lot of you. I just have such a burden for you men this morning. This message has been on my heart because I've got a burden for the married men in the room because I've seen it dozens of times that for men, the, the, the real excitement was in the pursuit and the chase and then you get the girl and you marry the girl and you stop paying attention to the girl because for you, the excitement was the pursuit and the excitement was the chase. And now that she's your wife, you begin to take her for granted. And what do taken for granted wives become? They become numb. And when wives become numb, when they stop, they, it's easier to feel numb than it is to feel disappointed all the time. 
And when wives feel numb, they, that, that is such a dangerous, precarious place in that marriage. And I don't want you guys to let that happen. And if that's you and, and you realize, man, in the house, I'm speaking to you. God has brought you here to wake you up. It's why we have a beautiful marriage movement in this church because we don't want to manage so many marriage crises. We want to prevent them before they ever start. And, and guys, you have such a role in this. When you remember what you take for granted might just get taken away. Don't take her for granted. And others of you, it's not your marriage. You might not even be married. It's your leadership at work. You're like, finally, that company recognized my talent and I've, I've got this authority and I've got this position and it's because I'm so smart and because I'm so deserving. If that's you, God brought you here. God had you tune in today to wake you up. What you take for granted might just get taken away. And others of you in the house, it has to do with your money. You're not just financially stable, you're financially comfortable. And you've been seduced by the thinking that it's your money and even worse, that it's your money to do with what you want and even worse, 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 that you're the reason that you have a surplus of it. And if that's you, God brought you here today to wake you up to the lie that you're living because what you take for granted might just get taken away. And then for a handful of you, it's, kind of the good name that you have. You got a good name in your subdivision or you got a good name in the community. You got a good name here at Good Shepherd Church and, 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 and you figure, well, if I, if I kind of cut some corners, skirt some issues, no one will find out. It's legal in Colorado. <laughs> Listen, if that's you, God brought you here to wake you up. What you take for granted, even your reputation might just get taken away. It is such a short step from entitlement to abandonment, to blasphemy, to idolatry. And I don't want any of you to take even the very first step. And some of you are like, okay, I believe I woke up. You, you talked about my money or my spouse or my leadership. I woke up. What do I do next? How do I make sure that King Belshazzar's lot or pretend King Belshazzar's lot is not my lot? Well, God bless Daniel. He gave us the clue right in the middle of his speech. You remember his on fire speech to Belshazzar? Look at what he said in verse 21. He, he, he said this, that the most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Hey, let's read that out loud and together. It's up on the screen. Let's read it. The most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. Man, you recite that every day. You recite that at the beginning of every day. And it will be a painful but very necessary reminder that everything you have and everything you've accomplished and everything you value does not come from you, but it all comes from God. And if God has to press you, if he has to come against you to make you realize how much he's for you, he'll do it. Whatever God needs to do to make you acknowledge that apart from him, you really are powerless. 
but because of him, you never are helpless. He will do it. Because I guess the one thing that I don't want any of you to take for granted is salvation itself. What an awful thing to be almost saved, to be mostly Christian, to fail to realize that partial acceptance is actual, com actually complete rejection. What an awful thing to take that for granted. What, what an awful thing not to hear the words from Hebrews chapter two and verse one, which says this, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. To what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And I just don't want anyone to drift away through that spirit of entitlement. Don't want you to drift away from your marriage or your leadership or your money or most of all, your status as one who's been bought by Jesus's blood and filled with Jesus's spirit. Let's pray. So Father, thank you for how good you are to us and thank you for the, the great amount of love you have for us. And I ask that you would well up inside of all of us that spirit of gratitude so that we don't take everything you've granted us for, for granted so that it won't be taken away. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.